Put it on. Well, thank you. Okay. You guys get to hear from two Palavics today. Bless your heart. Um, if you feel like standing uh, while I read God's word, I'm going to read from Luke 1, 26 to 56. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary, with great, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will, will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried up to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He's performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, and he has sent the rich away empty. He's helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and to descendants forevermore, even as he said to our fathers. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and returned home. Let's bow our heads. Father, I'm so thankful today for this Advent season and for the joy and the hope that uh, the coming Messiah brings, Lord. We're so thankful we know that you've been born a baby and that uh, we can know you as our personal Savior. And Father, as I read this, I'm just so humbled by the faithfulness and the obedience of Mary. Lord, even though that she might have been fearful at first, you calmed her fears 
and she carried forth the mission that you placed upon her. And I pray that each person in here, Lord, this church family means everything to me. And I'm just so thankful to be a part of this body. And I just pray that you would be with each one, Lord, that has uh, ears to hear what I'm speaking now. Father, I just pray that you will eliminate any fear from them as you call each one of us, Lord, to a special mission each and every day. I just pray that we'll be faithful and we'll be obedient to what it is that you have planned for our lives. I just pray that you'd bless David as he teaches us this morning, and I ask that the Holy Spirit will just minister powerfully through him. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Jan, for reading God's Word for us. Now, I love um, reading about the presidents. Um, it's kind of one of my favorite extracurricular things to read about. Um, but what's interesting is there are some presidents that there are just mountains and mountains of books about. Right? You could, you could not possibly read all the books about Lincoln or JFK or FDR in your lifetime if you tried. And then there are other presidents that you could because there's probably only two books about them ever written. Guys like William Henry Harrison and Martin Van Buren and John Tyler, James K. Polk. Those guys don't get as many books, partly because some of them only lived for you know, about a month in their presidencies. right? But well, it's, been, it's fun to read those and to see some of these unknown guys. Well, what is their story? What, what happened here? And that's kind of, in some sense, what we've been doing as we've been going through this series on the women of Advent, is we've been looking at names in the genealogy that maybe are less familiar to you. And now we finally come to the end, and we come to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this is a story from Luke that you probably know well. Um, but it may surprise you that Mary is actually the fourth most described person in the entire New Testament. The fourth most. Okay, that surprised me. Jesus, you get. Jesus has to be number one, right? Paul, probably number two. Peter, maybe three. You know, kind of mix them around. But then four, you'd probably go John, maybe Timothy, maybe Mark, maybe some of the other disciples there. But no, it's actually Mary. And that should surprise us. And especially, you'd think somebody with that much page time in the Scripture would have more of an impression in our minds, right? Other than when it just comes to Christmas time and we talk about her. But the reality is that especially as evangelicals, right, who we tend to not like to talk about Mary very much, especially if you come from a Roman Catholic background or if you've had some Catholic baggage, then you may not want to talk about her much because you see other people put way too much of an emphasis on her, so we kind of, we, right, we overreact and we just try not to talk about her much at all. But what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take a closer look at Mary and what, what I want to put before you is say that I think Mary is presented in Scripture, and this is the way she was understood for, through most of the early church as well, that she is somebody that we are to emulate as believers as a model disciple, someone that all of us should seek to emulate, young and old and men and women. And so we're going to take a closer look at her in this passage, and we're going to look at three people really here and see. We're going to look at Mary, and we're going to look at Jesus and then finally, we'll look at ourselves or our application. Um, and so, oh, uh -oh. are out of order. So, point number one, what we're going to see is we are going to see that God comes, or God loves to use 
nobodies from nowhere. That God loves to use nobodies from nowhere. And that's what we see when we look at the life of Mary. And we see right in the beginning, she finds out from the angel Gabriel that she is going to give birth to the Messiah. Okay, the promised one. The one that they have been longing for, the Jews have been for hundreds of years. On Wednesday nights, we've been going through these messianic prophecies and talking about how everything has been leading up to this point. This whole genealogy that we've looked at. We've only looked at five names, and there's many more names in there. All of them have been building up to this point. And so the angel Gabriel is telling Mary, Mary, you are going to be the one to have the Messiah. The highest honor that a woman could think of at this point is being a Jewish woman. It is yours. Your son will be the Messiah. Now, if you are going to be the, the coming king, right? If you're going to be, or if you're going to choose who the Messiah is going to be born to because he's going to build a new kingdom, he's going to start a new government, a new movement, it's going to change the world, that's what you're going for, what kind of woman are you going to choose? What kind of family are you going to choose, right? Probably somebody with influence, you would think. Maybe somebody important. Maybe a, the high priest's son, that, that would be good, right? Key religious leader, maybe some other Pharisees, maybe a king, maybe a judge, maybe a governor. You'd probably, all of us, logically thinking, that makes the most sense. That's who we're going to choose, right? That's not who God chooses. God chooses a nobody, an unknown girl from an unknown place. In verse, uh, the first verse um, in 26, it says, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth. Okay, there are tons and tons of names and towns and places in Scripture, right? Lots of them are hard to pronounce, especially you read through the Old Testament. And, you know, okay, I'm not even going to try. We'll just move on to the next one. There are plenty of those that are mentioned all over the place. Nazareth is never mentioned until this point. And in fact, Luke in this, he's assuming you probably don't even know where Nazareth is. That's why he's got to put it on a map for you. It's a city, and it's kind of near Galilee. It's over there in that point. You know, it's, it's that far away from Oklahoma City. It's, it's, over, it's over there, right? <laughs> Why? Well, because it's, it's a dump. It's a small town nobody's heard of. Nobody cares about Nazareth. Nobody's been to Nazareth. Nobody's visiting Nazareth. Nobody important's ever come out of Nazareth. One commentator um, went so far to say that Nazareth might as well just be called Nowheresville. Right? Because this is just God chooses somebody, an unknown girl, a nobody from nowhere. He doesn't choose somebody well-connected in the city. He doesn't choose somebody with influence. He doesn't choose somebody important. He chooses a nobody from nowhere. And, you know, I can relate to this, right, being from nowhere, um, or at least being from a place that nobody knows. Because Bree and I have moved around a lot, going to school in Virginia, and then being in Florida and Texas, and the people, oh, where are you from? Well, Nebraska, okay? Usually some people even struggle there. I can't really put that on a map. Even <laughs> met people from Kansas who couldn't find it on a map. They just, they just look up, we're right there, I know where you are. Um, and then, you know, so people would ask, well, where are you from? So we do this whole song and dance. It's a routine I've got down. Well, I named the closest big city. Think, maybe they've heard of this. I know they haven't heard of this. Well, have you heard of Kearney? No. Okay. Have you heard of North Platte? No. All right. Have you heard of Lincoln? Sometimes still, no, they haven't heard of Lincoln, which makes the Huskers sad. And you go, okay, Omaha. Oh, yes, Omaha. Yeah, yeah, I've heard of Omaha. Omaha Steaks. Is it close to that? No, we're about three and a half hours. <laughs> Three and a half hours away from that. You know what? Just look at a map, throw a dart right in the middle. That, that's where we are. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, why? It's a small town. Nobody's heard of it. To most people, it's an unknown place filled with nobodies that nobody cares about. But God loves to use nobodies from nowhere. 
That's what we see in the life of Mary. He loves to choose, and he intentionally chooses a woman from a small town no one has ever heard of that no one will ever care about because that's who God likes to use. Even later when Jesus' ministry, people ask, isn't this dude from Nazareth? Like, nothing good ever comes out of that dump. Never even heard of this before that. And Mary herself is a nobody. Verse 27, it describes her. It doesn't even give her name right away. It just says, well, there's a virgin betrothed to a man, and his name's Joseph, and his family, he's descended from David. He's from the house of David. He's, he's somebody. He's from a royal lineage. Oh, and yeah, that virgin, her, her name's Mary, I guess. It's probably important to tell you that. Okay, her, and Luke isn't doing that because Mary doesn't, he doesn't think Mary's important. He's trying to show that she is not somebody who's very significant. And Mary herself at this point is probably pretty young. Um, at her best guess, she's probably anywhere from 13 to 16 years old. So she's just a young teenage girl. Now, if you had to pick one of the most important assignments in all of human history, okay, that the salvation of the whole world hangs in the balance over this, how many of you are going to choose a teenage girl to complete this mission? Okay, laughing, probably none of you, right? Okay, teenage girls especially, especially tend to get mocked, get mocked fairly often, right? We tease them, we make fun of them, but God doesn't. Who does God choose? Who does God use? He uses a nobody teenage girl to accomplish his mission. Nobody from nowhere. You know, again, I enjoy reading these presidential biographies, trying to slowly read one in each president. I'm only halfway through. Some are more interesting than others, so I read more of their books um, and get stuck in some places. Um, but one of the things that my favorite ones, they always do, they always start not just at the childhood, but really, really good ones, they start at the parents of these presidents. And some, they get really serious, and they start at the grandparents, and they kind of build up some family history for a couple hundred pages before, you know, you ever get to the, where the story begins. But what's interesting is it's fun to read it and to look and to see, like, okay, can you see glimpses? Do you see hints of when this person, their greatness is going to come out? Can you tell? And some of them you can, some of them you can't, but if you looked at, uh, if you got your biography or the hands on the biography of Mary, there wouldn't be anything in her background ever that would make you think, this obviously is somebody who the Messiah is going to be born to. It's just an average teenage girl in a small town. But yet she becomes one of the most important women in human history. And why? It's not because she is so awesome, but because God is so awesome, and that is the kind of people that God likes to use. Nobody's from nowhere. And we see how God honors her in 28. And the angel comes to her and he says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she is greatly troubled as saying, and tries to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And this is a strange greeting. There's a couple different reasons why Mary would probably be confused. Um, the first of which is that Jewish men traditionally do not greet women ever in this culture at this time. They don't greet them, don't say hello to them on the street, they ignore them completely. So the fact that just any man would acknowledge her is surprising, let alone the fact that it's an angel. That would probably, you know, a second reason to be surprising. But he also, she's greeted as favored one. And then in verse 30, it's repeated again, for you have found favor with God. What does this mean? It means Mary has been chosen by God for this, not because she is so righteous, not because she is so awesome, not because God just can't resist using her because of her raw talent, but just because God in His grace has chosen to find favor with her. The, the emphasis here is just on God's grace visiting Mary, visiting this unknown girl in an unknown place. And it's in contrast to Elizabeth and Zechariah who are mentioned here, but this whole chapter, it's a long one. There's 80 verses, partly why we didn't read it all. But you can, I'd encourage you to read it and contrast Zechariah and Elizabeth and see 
had their story in the birth of John the Baptist and compared to Jesus. And one of the things is Zechariah and Elizabeth are really holy. It mentions their righteousness and their blamelessness. It doesn't do that with Mary. It's not because she's an incredible sinner, but it's because God visiting her doesn't have anything to do with how awesome she is. It's just about how awesome God is. And the angel tells her about her son, 22 and 33, says he's going to be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. This is a clear messianic saying he's going to be the Messiah, and she would get this. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's a mouthful. It's overwhelming to hear. But I love Mary's response in 34. She said, well, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, it's important for us to see what does she mean by this? What is she asking? So I think it's probably all of us would be, what, how? Especially if we're her, you're a virgin. You it's impossible for you to be pregnant. But again, contrast her with Zechariah, because Zechariah finds out that his son is going to be John the Baptist. He's going to be the voice crying out in the wilderness. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And him and his wife are old. This past the time when they should have kids, even though they've been longing for it and praying for it. And he responds, well, okay, well, how do I know? How shall I know this? Angel, you told me this is God's going to do this, but, I mean, come on, help me out. Give me a sign. Give me a reason to trust you. And he gets rebuked, and then he's mute and can't speak because of his lack of faith. Mary is not rebuked. And Mary isn't doing the same thing. She's not saying, I mean, come on, Gabriel. Okay. I mean, clearly I'm a virgin. What are you talking about? Why? No, no, no. She just says, well, how? So her response is one of faith. She is basically saying, okay, I believe you. Awesome. Can, can you walk me through the details? How's this going to happen? Okay, what do you want? What's next? What do you want me to do? Her response is one of faith. And so the angel walks her through it. In 35 and 37, he says, great, I'd love to tell you, well, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. He's going to make this happen. And then he gives Mary a sign, says, you know what? Zechariah asked for a sign, proof. Well, I didn't give it to him, but I'm going to give one to you, even though you didn't ask me. Look at that. And it's significant to note, too, that what's happening here is not anything like the Greek myths with Mary. This is not Zeus coming down from heaven to sleep with a young teenage girl that happens so often there. This is just the power of God miraculously making the impossible possible, as He always does. And Mary responds to all of that, which would make us, most of us be even more confused in 38, just says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. She says, I do your thing, God. I believe you. I trust you. Whatever you want. That's what you said? Great. I'm here. I'm your servant. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. That's the, the faith of a nobody teenage girl. Is incredible. Even at a young age, she believes that God can do the impossible. And this is where her faith starts, but her story doesn't end here. And in fact, as most of us know about her faith in this moment, even though it, you know, it, it reminds us, and I'm amazed by it um, most Christmases when it comes to think about it again, but her faith continues. And in her life, she actually builds up a legacy of faithfulness. In the Gospel of John, she is a witness to Jesus' first public miracle. And she just doesn't witness it. She actually kind of makes it happen. And then she says, hey guys, you know, we're out of wine. This is Jesus. Just do whatever He tells you to do because He's going to make it happen. 
Because she trusts Him, because she has faith. She's present with Jesus throughout much of His ministry. In fact, at some point between His childhood and death, it's very apparent that Joseph has disappeared off the scenes. Most likely is the fact that he has died. And so what we see is that Mary has, at that point, left everything behind, as much as her disciples sold it all, and she is wandering around following her son Jesus as his disciple. You'll see Jesus when he's young and he goes to the temple and says, this is my father's house, didn't you know I'd be doing his business? She just ponders it in her heart. She, she tries to wrap her brain and consider in faith. Okay, well, he's the Messiah, so I trust him. I don't know what this means. I'm just going to have to think about it a while. And in the Gospels, there's a point where people, so one point in Jesus' ministry, someone cries out, man, Jesus, your mom must be so blessed. She just must be the best woman ever. And Jesus responds, and he kind of rebukes, but doesn't. And he says, actually, you know, don't, don't bless my mom. Blessed are those who do the word of God. Now, sometimes we can read that and think, okay, God's saying, well, my mom's really not that blessed. Really, the people who are blessed are obedient. Yes and no. What he's also doing is saying, my mom is not blessed just because she's my mom. My mom is blessed because she, like you are all invited to do, has been obedient to the word of God, because that's what we see Mary doing time and time again. She embodies faithfulness and obedience. And she is one, not just who hears the word of God and does it, but she is one who is faithful to the end, even in suffering. She is one of the few disciples who is present with Jesus at his crucifixion. Peter wasn't there. Peter denied Jesus three times and ran away. Mark ran away naked. Most of the disciples abandoned Jesus. They fell asleep in the garden, and they are nowhere to be found because they are cowering in fear, not Mary. She is right there at the foot of the cross. Not just because it's her son, I think, that the text is trying to show us because of her faith. She remains. And she's not just there. She's also, again, at the upper room in Pentecost. When the Holy Spirit descends on the disciples who are waiting and praying and they speak in tongues and they go out into the world and the church begins and the church is launched, you know who's there? Mary's there. Mary's there. And she continues. Church tradition tells us she probably accompanied the disciple John throughout the rest of his ministry and ministered in the church at Ephesus. She is a model of faith for us. She doesn't just have faith in this passage, but she has faith throughout her entire life. And again, the, the, what I think the Bible does is present us as Mary as someone that we are to emulate, as here is a nobody from nowhere, and look how she is faithful to God all throughout his life and after it, and how we should follow her. Now, again, we can go too far, because right? the Roman Catholic Church and their desire to, to elevate Mary and to honor her have embraced some teachings that definitely go too far and outside of the bounds of Scripture. There are things like the dogma that she's remained a virgin the rest of her life. Well, Scripture says Jesus had other brothers and sisters. seems like that's probably not true. Unless you just want to cut the Scriptures out, I'd rather not. I'd rather just cut out my theology if it doesn't match the Bible. You know, they also tell us things like, well, when she died, her body was just taken right up into heaven miraculously. Oh, and, you know, and we should pray to Mary because she really could intercede to Jesus on our behalf. Well, no, we don't have to do any of that. That's why Jesus came, because we don't need another mediator. So there are things that can go too far. And, I don't, you know, we don't have time to go into all of those things. But the problem is, as evangelicals, if we come out of that background, what we can do is we can overreact. Well, we really don't like that, don't want to pray to Mary, so just not talk about her at all. Well, that's too far. Or, you know, we'll talk about her at Christmas, maybe a little bit, say she did good here, pat her on the back. Okay, let's move on to somebody else. But Mary should be spoken about the way we talk about other heroes of the faith, the way we talk about Abraham, Moses, and Ruth, 
Because Elizabeth, when she sees Mary in 42, she says, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. She says, this is incredible the way that God has blessed you and is using you. And in 45, she says, blessed is she who believed. She's blessed and honored, but not because she's somebody important, because she is a nobody who believed. A nobody who had faith. The invitation is there for all of us to, to have that kind of faith. And Mary is somebody who God greatly blessed, and we should acknowledge it. So don't let our fear of going too far somewhere miss out or let you miss out on what God reveals in His Word. And so what we should see from Mary for us is the reminder that God loves to use nobodies from nowhere. That if we have faith, if we believe God and we believe His Word, that He can use us. God doesn't just use Christians in big cities. He doesn't just use pastors and elders in big churches. God uses ordinary believers in ordinary places who believe and have faith and trust in His Word. And part of this Christmas, we need to just acknowledge that fact. Because our culture, we love best, right? We, we want the brightest, the most powerful, the most important. And I, this makes me think about football a little bit, um, partly because I spent time, much time watching it yesterday, being disappointed by the outcomes in most of those games, personally. I'm sure not all of you were. But what can happen, right, is all, we always, at this point, get to lots of talk about firing coaches, okay? Because this coach stinks. We got to get rid of him. We need somebody better. Okay, I've also been participating in some of that discussion because, unfortunately, I like Texas, and they're not as good as I want them to be. So, you know, hey, let's get rid of them. We should be the best. I mean, sure, we're winning most of our games. We're pretty mediocre, and we're above average. I don't like that. We don't like that. No, that's horrible. It's the worst thing I can imagine. We need to be the best. Why are we not the best? Get this guy out of here. Get somebody else in here. Right? And we, we can laugh, but we all, you know, many of us feel that way. I've heard some of you talk about your football teams. I know you feel that way. <laughs> the problem is that attitude can get infectious when it starts to impact our spiritual life. When we start to think, well, being mediocre, being ordinary isn't good. That's not enough. It's not good to be a nobody. Friend. I want to be somebody. I want to be like Abraham. I want people to know my name. I want people to see my faithfulness, my awesomeness. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God mostly just uses nobodies from nowhere in nowhere places. You don't need to be somebody special for God to use you. All you have to do is have faith and be obedient. The church is made up of millions of ordinary believers in ordinary places who are just trying to serve Jesus. It is not up to you or up to me alone to even just reach Duncan or Stevens County with the gospel. We are all just one believer in one spot in our small spheres, and we should do our best to obey and honor Jesus. And then let's see what he does with nobodies. Because he's going to do what he's always done. Because the kingdom of God is made up of a bunch of nobodies from nowhere. And that is incredible. That should be encouraging to us. Because look what Jesus can do with Mary. Look what he can do with all of us. So that's Mary. Let's turn and let's, um, let's take a look at Jesus here. What we see after this is Mary bursts out into a beautiful song. And it's one of only three songs um, in Scripture that are specifically written by women. Um, the other two, one of them is by Miriam, Moses' sister, and the other one is Deborah, who's the only judge in the Old Testament, one of the only female leaders in the history of Israel. And so Mary bursts out into singing this. This is maybe my favorite one, um, but it's definitely one that we tend to, to overlook. But we see in this song, and what it teaches us is that Jesus 
came to bring a kingdom of salvation. Jesus came to bring a kingdom of salvation. And again, the message of Christmas is not just that our Savior is born, but it is that a king is born. And this bears repeating. In verse 55, near the end of it, it says, As He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His offspring forever, Jesus came to fulfill all the promises that God made all the way back in Genesis 15. All the promises He made throughout the prophets, throughout the law, throughout all of Scripture, that He was coming, that he, they would have a king, that He would live forever, that He was bringing salvation. Jesus came to bring a kingdom of salvation, and He came as a king. And He's bringing the kingdom with Him. This song is often called the Magnificent, um, just because its you know, soul magnifies. And the song, it's really all about what the kingdom of God is really like. It's not just what this king is and what he will be like, but what is his rule going to be like? What's it going to be like to be a subject in the kingdom of the Messiah? But it begins by talking about the kind of king that he is and how incredibly he is in 48. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Jesus is a king who looks out for nobodies like Mary, for nobodies like you, for nobodies like me, for nobodies like Abraham. Abraham wasn't anybody before God showed up, but God showed up. And he comes and he does amazing things for his people. In 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That's easy to skip over. Can you think of all the times that God helped Israel? All of them? There's a lot. All the times that God has shown up for his people. He showed up for Adam and Eve even after they sinned. And he wrapped them in clothes. And he talked to them. He showed up for Abraham and he gave him a son. He showed up to Israel when they're bound in slavery and he sent to them a redeemer. He showed up for them time and time again when the nations would come and would threaten to destroy them. And he showed up and he saved them. He showed up even when they were in exile and he took them back and he let them rebuild the walls. He showed up for Tamar. He showed up for Rahab. He showed up for Ruth. He showed up for Bathsheba. He showed up for Mary. God shows up over and over to help his people when they trust him. God shows up for nobodies. His kingdom is for no ones. And this song tells us about the kingdom of God. And, and what we need to, to recognize is that Jesus was not born on Christmas Day to just teach us some good moral lessons. Jesus wasn't born to tell us to just follow our hearts, believe in yourselves, maybe be kind to each other, be nice to your neighbor, that'll be good. He didn't just come to start a movement where people are really nice and then it builds out and then the world's a much brighter place and it's all sunshine and rainbows and we sing Kumbaya. He came to bring a kingdom. He came to remake reality. He came to take over. That's what He came for. And these verses can actually um, cause a bit of a debate because there's an undeniable political component to the kingdom of God. And by political, what I mean is that his kingdom has something to say about how the people live in his society. In the kingdom of God, the king has things to say about it and things for how they should live, how they should function. His government, it's going to be on his shoulders and there will be peace without no end. That sounds like a wonderful government. And that government is going to be a very big government. It might make some of you uncomfortable, but when Jesus is on charge of that, I think I'm okay with it. You can settle that with your own heart. But the debate comes towards some of this, what do we do here? What do we do with 52 and 53? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He takes down the people in power. He takes down the politicians. He takes down all the other kings, and he exalts those of humble estate. He flips it. 
His kingdom isn't for the political leaders. His kingdom is not for those who are in charge. His kingdom is not for the people with all the money and the influence. It's for the other people. And he fills up with hungry. He fills up the hungry with good things and the rich he sends away. And the danger too here, we can do the same thing with Christ's kingdom as we do with Mary, which really we do with anything as we tend to extremes and we just pendulum swing back and forth. And so some go way too far on one way. And so they view this and say, well, look, see, Jesus is coming to bring a new political reality and he's flipping the world on its head and the, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it's a kingdom of nobodies and that's what it's about. So Jesus is bringing a new political reality. He's elevating the poor and he's knocking down the rich, which is right. But then they go way too far when they start to say, well, Jesus didn't come to bring salvation. He just came to remake the world and do this. Well, it all, the kingdom only has political connotations. Whoa, that's, that's missing it. Others of us, we will look at this and fail to see any political connotations. We'll say, no, 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 look, it's wrong to say that Jesus came to remake anything. He didn't come to set up a government or change the way that I have to live my life or the way you have to live your life. He just came to bring us individual salvation. And the reality, if we're honest with ourselves, is that the kingdom is probably more political than many of us realize, and that's me. That's where I contend. I, failed, I struggled to see that. But for some of us, it's way more spiritual than you realize. And so we have to examine our own blind spots and say, where are we? Look at Scripture. What does it have to say? But it's important to, to remember the emphasis that Jesus' kingdom is first spiritual. Okay, both elements are here, but it's important to get the order right because the disciples and most of the people miss Jesus and miss the disciple because they were looking for political salvation, for political deliverance, and they miss that, well, they, what they really needed first was spiritual deliverance. They first needed to be set free from their sins. They wanted to see Jesus save them politically, give, bring a new administration, get these other guys out of here, let's fix this, let's make Israel awesome. And Jesus had to continually correct them and say, look, I'm here for that. I'm going to do that, but not yet. You need to get the order right, because first we need a Savior. And in fact, we need a Savior. This is why Jesus came in the first place. It's why He had to be born in a human body, because all of us have blown it. All of us have totally messed up. All of us have deeply sinned. And every single human being on earth is infected by sin. We are infected by it and we choose it. And we inherit it from Adam and from Eve, from their, their beginning decision that has changed the trajectory of every human being that will ever be born. But we sure make enough sinful decisions on our own as well, don't we? At least I do. I don't know about you. What I've learned, you know, is raising these two young boys is, you know, I did not have to teach Calvin how to sin. Okay, he figured that out pretty quickly on his own. And oftentimes, he does lots of things he's not supposed to do. And he does things he's not supposed to do that he knows he's not supposed to do. And one of the ways we find this out is, you know, whenever, you all know this, many of you probably know this already, but whenever you have a toddler, if it's very quiet, something is wrong. <laughs> so what happens is, bringing eyes to the habit, when something's wrong, quiet, we say, Calvin... Are you being a good boy? And usually, he's pretty good about this. Usually, if he's being fine, he'll respond and say, yeah. We go, okay, everything's probably fine. Usually is. But we call it, Calvin, are you being a good boy? And it's silent. <laughs> he is not being a good boy. He's doing something he's not supposed to be doing, and he knows he's not, and he's being quiet. Hopefully, we won't come and investigate it. And so often, that's when I come around, and then I see him playing with the phone, or I see him, he's got a computer. He's doing something with something he's not supposed to be doing, and he knows he's not. And so when I find him, I'm like, Calvin, what are you doing? He throws it, and he runs away. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about, Dad. I don't know. What is this? 
right? Because he knows something's wrong. He knows he's doing something he shouldn't do, even though he, he's just now learning how to communicate and how to do things, right? But it is deep, it is hardwired into us as human beings. We are broken and we are flawed. And that problem will not be fixed just by me teaching Calvin how to be nicer. Because we can do that, and he could do that. He could become the nicest human being in the world. But if he misses Jesus, he's going to miss out. Because the reality is that our best efforts will not free us from the power of sin. All the best self-help books in the world will not free you from death's grasp. And even if they did, even if you somehow reached a point without Jesus that you never sinned again, which is impossible, good luck. But if you, even if that was humanly possible, you are still guilty before God because you've sinned before. And we're all guilty, every single one of us. And the penalty of sin is death. Because God requires absolute obedience. Not a single sin is allowed in heaven or in God's presence. Okay, I've got at least two from post 10 o'clock that I can think of. Okay, so we all have a problem. We've all got at least one sin. And the problem is that we all deserve death and hell because of our sins. We cannot save ourselves. So what are we to do? Enter Jesus. Enter the birth of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came to be born as a man. Jesus condescended down to humanity. He wrapped himself up in flesh and was willing to be a tiny baby to put on the flesh of a human being. Why? Because only a human being can pay the price for sin. But the only one who can pay the price for sin to save us has to be sinless, which is none of us, so only God can do it. Only God can be perfect. And this is why Jesus was born, to bring this salvation. And the beauty of Christmas and the nativity is not just that it is cute, not just that the lights are wonderful, but it is that our salvation and our deliverance has entered into human history that the Savior is born, and He has come to save us. I love this quote from Pastor um, Tim Keller, where he says, The gospel is this, that you are more sinned and flawed than you ever dared believe. That's true. The best part is he ends and says, But you are more loved than you ever dared you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you are more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the gospel, is that we are desperately and deeply sinful and need a Savior to come. And we are way more sinful than we want to ever admit, even as we joke about it. Our sin is much deeper and much grosser and much more offensive to the living God of the cosmos. And yet... His love and His grace is even greater still. That's what Christmas is. It is not just that baby Jesus was born and isn't that cute. It is that our Savior came to save disgusting, lost, hopeless sinners. And He came to do that. And not just to do that and then smack us on the butt and send us out the door and say good luck, but He then came to build a kingdom for nobodies from nowhere that He will use to remake the world in His image. So that's Jesus. Let's quickly look at us um, and in our, in our application. And our application is this. I, I want you to remember the King and His kingdom this Christmas. Remember the King and His kingdom this Christmas. And that's really not game-changing at all. Um, that's, something, that's not something you 
never heard before, and that's a good thing. Why? Well, because the message of Jesus' birth has not changed in the last 2,000 years, and it won't, and we need to remember it. And as believers, we, we talk a lot about that, right? Especially in this time, we need to remember the reason for the season. We need to make sure we don't forget about Jesus. That's partly why I like Advent. Um, I like talking about it and thinking of it that way. For me, in my brain, it tricks me to remember, yes, this is different than what everyone else is talking about. Advent is different than the Christmas commercials and the Christmas Hallmark movies that I see. Because Christmas has plenty of connotations and meanings over the world. Advent doesn't have quite as many. It's about anticipating the coming of the King and His kingdom. And we can usually do pretty good, I think, as believers to remember that Jesus really did come to bring us salvation, but we're not quite as good at remembering the fact that He came to bring a kingdom. His birth inaugurates a new reality. It inaugurates a new way of life, a completely new thing that flips the world upside down. The world is not about the somebodies, it's not about the rich, it's not about the mighty on their thrones. It's those people are taken down and the rich are sent away empty. The kingdom is about nobodies from nowhere that have nothing. That is what Jesus came for. America is not the kingdom. Jesus and His church is the kingdom. That is His reality. and He flips it upside down and the kingdom is a good place for nobodies. His kingdom is a great place for people without power, without influence, who don't feel like they're somebody significant or important, because in the kingdom of God, you are. So this Christmas, I just want to, to challenge all of us to, to remember that it's not just about Jesus and His salvation for us individually, but that He is coming to bring a kingdom as well. And his birth at Christmas wasn't just about our salvation, but about redeeming and remaking the entire world. And we have a small foretaste of it right now. In fact, every single week when we gather as a church, what we're doing right now is we are bearing witness to the world to the fact that there is a king that we worship and his kingdom is coming. And we gather here on Sunday and we gather together as believers, we get a tiny taste of what that kingdom of heaven is going to be like. And we need to remember as we taste a little bit of it now is that it is coming. His kingdom is coming and it will be here forever. And it's not going away. There's no term limits. There's no elections because if we, the people could elect, we wouldn't vote for Jesus because we wouldn't like his platform. None of us, I think, if we're really honest with ourselves. But His kingdom is coming. He is our King. And His kingdom is a great place for nobodies. So we've seen this morning as we've looked at Mary and we've seen that God loves to use nobodies from nowhere. We've seen from Jesus that He came to bring a kingdom of salvation. He came and He was born to deliver all of us from our sins and to bring a new way of life and to remake reality. And what we need to remember this Christmas is we need to remember the King and remember His kingdom this Christmas. So remember, remember His kingdom is a place for nobodies, like you and like me. And I'm so grateful that it is. I'm going to close this in prayer and invite our worship team to, to come up and to lead us to, to worship our King bow your heads with me. Lord, I thank you that you are a God who loves nobodies. Lord, that you are a God 
who came down to save us from our sins. Lord, there, there is no one in this room or no one in this world that is too great of a sinner and too far away from you and your grace. That your salvation is available to any who would come. Lord, if there are those in this room or those watching who do not know you, I would ask that you would invite and draw them to yourself. Reveal to them your love and your grace, that there is forgiveness for all of their sins, that they are, they are more sinful and flawed than they ever believed, but they are more loved than they ever dared hope. Help us who know you and who are believers to also remember that. Lord, let us not forget your gospel. Let us not forget that you are a king. And let us not forget that you are coming to bring a kingdom. And that every Sunday we get a tiny taste of how wonderful and amazing it will be. Thank you so much for coming, Jesus. We would be totally lost without you. We pray this in your holy and precious name. I invite you to stand as we sing Joy to the World. And we can have joy because he really has come. So I just want to read this benediction for you from the passages that we read. May your souls magnify the Lord. May your spirits rejoice. For the Savior has looked on the humble estate of his servants. Just us, a bunch of nobodies. For he who is mighty has done great things for us, and holy is his name. God bless you. Have a Merry Christmas. You're dismissed.